as they're making the transition off the stage, I do apologize for it being kind of cool in here. Apparently our HVAC system is down. So there's a heater that's been put over there. If you're cold natured, I would encourage you at this point in the sermon to move over by Chris Shoemate there to be warmer uh, in that general area. Or you can move closer to the front as there's heat in the front of the stage, but there is not heat in the back of the room. So all you good Baptists that are in the back, that's the coldest part of the room. So you might want to consider moving forward for heat in the front or over by where Pam is sitting for heat there. And if you need to get a jacket or whatever, please do so. But don't get too warm and fall asleep. Just get warm enough that you don't put yourself in risk of getting sick. So, all right, listen, this is uh, going to be a little bit of a different sermon this morning, okay? Because this is Christmas time. We're moving through a Christmas season as all these sermons have been a little bit different. And in particular, this one will be different than the ones prior to still. Uh, I want to I give us a thought today. I, I was having lunch this week with somebody here at the church. And I was like, you know, I was just curious. And I said, tell me what you think about the Old Testament. I would like to know your thoughts on the Old Testament. And he said, in the last church that I was in, we were just told to ignore the Old Testament. Because all that's uh, fulfilled and you don't have to worry about it. And the law has been... a Abolished, so don't forget about it. Forget about the Old Testament. Not, not worth, I guess, your time or your effort. Obviously, you probably knew my reaction when I heard this. <laughs> uh, I was pretty, pretty. Uh, my, I had to pick my jaw up off the table that that he received teaching like this in a church that claimed to be a Bible-believing church. And uh, I wanted to take this moment this morning to point out something that's critically important, and that is, uh, I want to kind of build. Uh, this is what theologians say, a biblical theology of Christmas from the Old Testament, sort of a quick sort of snippet look at this. But also, if you walk away today, to put it in just layman terms, I, I want you to see this morning how the Old Testament prepares us for Christmas. Okay? Um, God loves a nice, long prologue, right? Or prologue, right before you get into the main part of the story. And while the Old Testament is not merely just that, it could be said at a minimum it is that, right? And so what I would like to do is kind of examine some of this and point to you this morning and get in your mind how the Old Testament is preparatory for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, And I want to do that by kind of reading and thinking about what we already have in the New Testament uh, has anyone here ever heard of a guy named Benjamin, uh, Benjamin B. Warfield, B.B. Warfield for short? B.B. Uh, Warfield made a great quote about, gave us a great quote about how we should think about the Old Testament, and particularly reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament and understanding it through the lens of the New Testament. And here's what he says about the Old Testament. He says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before. So that's interesting, isn't it? The New Testament doesn't bring anything to the Old Testament that wasn't already there. That's what he's saying, right? But it brings out into clear view much of what is in it. But it was only dimly or even not even at all perceived before. So what is what we learn from B.B. Warfield? What's he saying? He's saying that the Old Testament speaks to us about what is coming, that God is doing something in types and shadows. 
Right? That's what the Old Testament does over and over. It speaks to us in types and shadows about what God is doing and bringing about, and particularly here at Christmas time in the Incarnation. In many ways, and you read the Old Testament, one of the last books of the Old Testament, uh, Micah chapter 5, right? We learn about this town, right? This little town. It says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephraim, you who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, who, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. To an 8th century B.C. Uh, Jewish uh, audience, if they were reading that text, right, they would say, who is this? It's obviously someone from the line of David, but everyone from the line of David, as we saw at the beginning of the series, has been a disappointment. Who is this talking about, right? Nathan here uh, you know, excuse me, Malachi here, he, he points us to something that God is doing, something that God will do as a new. So how does he do this? Well, how does he use the Old Testament to prepare us for the New Testament? Well, the first thing I would point to is God's theophanies in the Old Testament. That's a big fancy word theologians use to describe what? An appearance of God prior to Christ, right? So a theophany before Christ is born is when God comes to visit people in the Old Testament. He is there in a morphic human form. It is not the incarnation. It's not to be confused with the incarnation of God, but He appears to them in a human form. Now let me, let me be very clear. There are theophanies in the Old Testament that scare people. Right? Like whenever God descends on Mount Sion and he rests on top of there and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's dark clouds and there's earthquakes and everybody's like, you know what? I, uh, can we have a representative to go up there and talk to him? Because I'm not sure I want to talk to somebody like this. And so Moses goes up and speaks on the people's behalf. Right, But let's go back further than that. Let's start in the beginning, I think would be best to start with. Starting in the beginning, way back in Genesis, we learn that God builds something. He makes something. What does He make? He makes a what? He makes a garden, right? And He places man in that garden. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but in many ways, the Garden of Eden is really a garden temple. He said, that's an odd thing to say, but it truly is. God has perfected this. And why do you say it's a garden temple? Well, what is in the temple in the Old Testament? What, what's dwelling in the temple in the Holy of Holies? What's in there? Is it not the presence of God? Right? Is it not? Is it not supposed to be there? In a similar fashion here, the way the the Old Testament constructs this first garden, the Garden of Eden, God is dwelling with them and He is walking with them. Look at this passage here from Genesis 3. There is a right here in the beginning, at the very start of creation, at the start of humanity, there is an alongsideness, an alongsideness that God gives to His creation mankind. And look what it says here in Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of, what's it say, church? The Lord God, what? Walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Now, they had already eaten the fruit that they'd been. They had one rule, right? You ever seen those videos? You had one job and you messed up your one job, right? They had one job in the garden of Eden. You had one fruit to avoid. They couldn't do it. 
And now they are running from God who wants to come alongside and walk with them. But in their sin, they're hiding. This is the only place that we see uh, God walking with the people. No, in Exodus 24, and I'll have this one here in my notes for you to see on the board, but I have it in my notes here. They, the Israelites send God up. They send Moses up to meet with God, his transcendence. It affects him in a way. His face glows for the rest of his life. It kind of scares them and they put a veil over his faith because he saw the backside of Moses. Moses saw the backside of God in his transcendent uh, Shekinah glory form and it affected him forever. Uh, but is that the only place we see God walking along and coming along with a long sideness? No, I don't think so. If we fast forward just a little bit to Genesis 18, right? Genesis 18, we have something happening in this passage. Uh, this, is, this is interesting to me. Uh, this is a theophany, I think we could say. Probably a Christophany of Christ, right? Uh, an ophany appearance of Christ, Christos, right? Christ uh, appearing. Genesis 18, verse 2. Uh, this is, uh, we're going to see... Moses here lifting up his eyes. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself before them and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant. Let a little water be drawn out and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the river while I bring a, a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Oh, excuse me. I said Moses earlier. I meant Abraham. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seats of, of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the head and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf and he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Uh, who, who is this three? Isn't it interesting that it's three, right? We believe in the blessed what? Trinity, right? There are three that make this appearance before Abraham. O Lord, and look how he addresses him in verse 3 here. O Lord, right? He understands, right? This is a unique appearance here. One of the three apparently is there. Now, we also come to understand here that Abraham is in a discussion with God. Actually, it eventually almost breaks into an argument. You know what one person, in talking about Judaism, they said Judaism is basically a 4,000-year-old argument with God. That's basically what it is. It's God's people arguing with God back and forth for 4,000 years. We advance down to Genesis 18, 26. And these visitors that are there with Abraham, we find out they, they go on, they travel into Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's this discussion that ensues here. And the Lord said to Abraham, If I find Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for the sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I will have understood to speak to the, what church? To the Lord. Abraham speaking to the Lord. I who am but dust 
and ashes. You get down to 18, two angels arrive in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, there are two that are there. We find out in that text, it actually tells us that one of them is Yahweh, the one true and living God. The other two men are ID as servants of God, but one is Yahweh. God has revealed himself, not in the transcendence of the mountain, but in some sort of human man appearance, not the incarnation. This is before the incarnation. This is God uh, here visiting in his alongsideness, identifying with us, becoming one like us. And then as we move forward in the Old Testament and we think about another appearance of God, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. I'm going to use this text again in just a moment to demonstrate something else. But in Judges chapter 6, I want you to look at this with me. Uh, this is the story of the, the birth of Samuel, the, or it's not Samuel, the, this is the birth of uh, the guy that pushed the pillars over. Help me out here, church. Samson, excuse me. The birth of Samson, yes. Samson's birth and the narrative that is there. And it says here, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And this is him kind of speaking to, um, to the uh, parents of him that is there in Judges 6. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you. Oh, sorry. I, I got ahead of myself. This passage in Judges 6 is about Gideon. And this is kind of funny, the address that they give Gideon, because we, we learn from the context of the passage that Gideon is, is threshing wheat down in a wine press. So usually you thresh wheat up on a hilltop, but the armies that are surrounding them there, there's a group of raiders that are coming in and out, and they're taking people. He's afraid to thresh the wheat on top of the hill because he'll be seen. They see him threshing wheat. They're going to come take everything he has, maybe murder him, kill him, because he's going to go down to a valley so he can hide from the camp that is around him there. Angel of the Lord appears to him in Judges 6. Says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Which is kind of a joke, right? Actually, I don't know if you know this or not about the book of Judges. Because you probably read it. And you probably read some of Judges and you're like, this is really rough, right? Like as you read the book of Judges, it's rough. There's a lot of parts in Judges that is meant to be comical to Jewish people. But there's also a lot of parts in Judges that are almost not appropriate for church people. Do you understand what I'm saying? So anyhow, that's the book of Judges in a little nutshell. So uh, the Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. Gideon said, please, my what? If the, look at the Lord is with us. Uh, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us in the hands of Midian. And then look at verse 14, what it says. Read it with me, church. And the, so we had a messenger that was standing in front of him. Uh, some kind of an angel, God-man-like type humanoid person. And he addressed him and said, Gideon, son of valor. He's telling him what he will be eventually. He will be a man of valor. Here, in verse 14, we learn this is not really just an angel, but this is what? This is the Lord in a precarnate theophany appearing to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Again there, and what does he say to him? And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the might of yours and save Israel from Midian. Do I not send you? And Gideon perceived that he, was an, that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, alas, God, Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said, Peace to you, 
do not fear. And look at the last part here. Peace to you, do not fear. Is the last part there in verse 22? All the way down 22. Peace to you, do not fear. You shall not die, right? Interesting here. He's beginning to understand the concept here, coming face to face with God. Jacob has a similar experience in Genesis 32. In Genesis 32, he's getting ready here to move to the land where he's been called to. I spent uh, last week kind of talking about this. Uh, that same night he crossed and took two wives, two female servants, 11 children, crossed uh, the uh, ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man, <coughs> a man, it says here in verse 24, he's described as a man, wrestled with him until the break of day. Well, who is this strange person, right? I mean, don't you think it would be weird if you were uh, taking a trip to visit your family in St. Louis, Missouri, or wherever your family lives, and on the way you stop at the gas station and some random guy comes up to you and just starts wrestling you? I mean, that's just sort of like very random and weird, and you don't understand what's going on here. Just random guys coming out of gas stations wrestling you, right? That's a great holiday picture and thought. Uh, And when the man saw him, he did not prevail against Jacob, and he touched him at his hip, socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him and he said let me go for the day has broke for the day has broken and but Jacob said I will not let you go unless you bless me and he said to him what is your name and he said Jacob then he said your name shall no longer be Jacob but what church Israel for you have strived with the Lord and with men and have prevailed then Jacob asked him please tell me your name But he said, why is it that you ask my name? Then he blessed him. So Jacob called the place uh, Penel, saying, for I have seen, what's it say, church? God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. And the sun came up and rose and he passed. Now limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thing uh, of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. So Jacob understood he had he'd been wrestling with God. It wasn't just some random dude at a gas station, right? As weird as that would be. It was God that he was face to face with and wrestling. Now the narrative of Samuel's birth. There's this discussion between, uh, excuse me, Samson's parents. We learn about this in Judges 13. There was a certain man, Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, By the way, it should be noted here in this passage, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, of the two of them, She is the more theologically astute, and you will see that. She's the one who gets who God is more than Mr. Manoah does. And for some reason, I don't know why, we don't even know her name. We just know Mr. Manoah's name. Okay, The wife gets it and the husband doesn't. Not like that ever happens now, right? (laughs) Right, ladies? Anyway, so the wife gets it, the husband doesn't. Here we go. Here's what happens to her. Angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold! Uh, You, the angel of the Lord, appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not bore children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful 
and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be as a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And then if you move down in the same chapter in Judges, and Mr. Manoah, you know, Basically, the, the discussion ensues here about, well, who really said this? Did, did you really say this or did you get a hold of some bad, uh, you know, uh, trying to think of a Middle Eastern dish right now. Did you get a bad piece of lamb chop last night and have some kind of a weird dream? I mean, can this be legit? She said, no, it's legit. So he wants to hear it for himself. And Mr. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, you know, the angel appears to him. He rebukes him. You can read more about this today, this afternoon. He tells him, all right, I've already said this to your wife, but basically you can almost feel the eye roll in the text. But I'll say it to you again. Since you won't believe your wife, I'll say it to you. And he tells him the same thing that he just told the wife. He moved down to 17, and Mr. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing that... Look what it says here in verse 18. Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is what church? Wonderful. Who else has that name? Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a Christophany here in this passage. So Manoah took the young goat and grain offering and offered on the rock of the Lord to the one who knows who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame came towards heaven from the altar, the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Can you imagine this? Like there's this, there's three people standing there, the offerings being given. This angel, the Lord, which is actually a precarnate Christ who says his name is wonderful. And they give this offering and this third person goes up in the fire as it retracts back to heaven, Right? And then all of a sudden, you know, Manoah's wife tried to tell him, seen, get this message. He didn't believe her. I'm not even sure he really believed this was God at the point he told him, my name is wonderful. But he seems to get it whenever he goes up in the flame. And look what it says here. And they fell on their faces on the ground. That's a proper response to seeing God. It's falling with your face to the ground. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife uh, than Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall die, we shall, we shall surely die, for we have seen, what does it say church? We've seen God today, right? And then Mrs. Manoah being the better theologian than her husband which happens from time to time, right? This wife took him and said, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would, have, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and they called his name Samson, right? How does the transcendent, how does the imminent God who dwells in heaven in the vastness of, of such that no building could contain him, much less a human body. 
And yet, there are these appearances where he appears like a man. These theophanies, these Christophanies throughout the New Testament. What is he doing? He is preparing us for what? That God will become man and dwell among us. So that's a beautiful piece of furniture in the room that the New Testament lights up for us. That There are these theophanies and these Christophanies all throughout the Old Testament. Not anything new, but now we can see them for what they really are. But there's something else. There's another fine piece of furniture I want to draw your attention to quickly here. As we turn on the light switch with B.B. Warfield and behold the room as it is. And that is the supernatural birth narratives of the Old Testament. Have you ever put this together and pieced this together in, in the preparing us for Christmas? Can you think of any supernatural births in the Old Testament? Can you give me one, church? Sarah. Yeah, there's one, right? Sarah, right? Abraham, Isaac, Sarah... Uh, Sarah was what? What was Sarah's problem? Do you remember? Yeah, she's barren. She can't have children. And God intervenes, doesn't he? Um, And she has a child. He opens the womb. Uh, we, We look in the Old Testament and we see Abraham and all of his family. Uh, he's, you know, getting old and Uh, She's getting old and God blesses and they have a child, right? God is able to take bodies that are older and to bless them, right? And and to open the wounds that are closed. Are there any other? There are at least three, all of them kind of patriarchal, right? Isaac and Rebekah. You remember Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis uh, chapter 25, verse 19 records the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of uh, or took Rebecca as his wife. Uh, Jacob and Rachel is one. Uh, in this, a, a pattern here is a miraculous birthday that happens here with three of the patriarchs of Israel. Three births that are miraculous, right? Rebecca is barren. And what does Isaac do? He, he uh, prays to the Lord. The Bible tells us that in chapter 29... Of Genesis there that God answers that prayer and Rachel, uh, you know, Rebecca has a child. So uh, it's interesting when we put all this together that there are these passages throughout the entirety of Scripture where there's an alongsideness in the Old Testament of God coming alongside, and then with all these patriarchs, there are these miraculous births that happen. Now. This all points us to what? It points us to the coming miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? The three miraculous births are preparing us. God is saying here, you know, I'm going to do things my way. I will do things in such a way that it will be only by my hand of a miracle that this can be accomplished. Jesus is unique in that regard. There's no other virgin births in history. He's the only one. The only miraculous one is there. And all of those miraculous births in the Old Testament, Sarah and Rebecca, all of them point forward to Mary's birth of Christ. What are we, what are we to 
to kind of do with us? What are we to understand this with? How do we make sense of this? Graham Cole uh, wrote a great book to help us with the Advent and also with Christ's coming. We're pointing out something critically important. We go all the way back to the Old Testament where the Bible tells us the first prophecy of Jesus' coming is right after the fall. talks about how God had cursed the serpent and how that man's heel will crush his head, that the offspring of the woman, right, will crush his head, but he will bruise his heel, you know. We are pointed to, as soon as the fall happens, we are pointed in the Old Testament to the fact that God is going to do something brand new, right? And here's what I love what Graham Cole says. He said, it was the hope of a new state of affairs, whether it was a new song on the lips of God's people, as in Psalm 23, or a new covenant, as in Jeremiah 31, or a new spirit and a new heart, as in Ezekiel 36, 26, a new heavens and a new earth, as in Isaiah 65, 17. There was a hope that God himself would come and set things right. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about God coming, not just alongside but giving us a new covenant. It's about God coming into a world destroyed by sin and dead and bringing life and conquering the enemy. It's about one virgin birth, a promise made years and years and years ago, fulfilled and delivered. It's about the prophet, the priest, the king, the judge who comes all in one. And we had seen their shadows in type in Samson. We had seen them uh, in uh, all these Old Testament figures we've looked at. We've seen bits and types of it here. But now, at Christmas, in the Christmas narrative, the mystery is beginning to be revealed. And the lights are coming on in the Old Testament. I hope to look at the mystery of the incarnation at um, Christmas Eve. That's going to be my little kind of sermon there to build off of this one. But this concept here, the light of the mystery coming on as we stand and we think about this. The true light in the world, the transcendent, the eternal son made flesh, put on flesh and blood and walked among us. He is the abiding truth that we need. It prepares us for the coming of the Son, for the coming of God in human flesh. It pleased Him to dwell with men. This is the Jesus we celebrate at Christmas. This is our Emmanuel. So what do we do with this? Well, I think real quickly, our hearts should be overjoyed to know this was always the plan that God had. Two, we should believe this, right? This is not something that somebody just made up on a whim. Listen, Hollywood can't write this stuff in tandem this good. Hundreds of years connected. And three, we should trust the Lord in in whatever issues that we're struggling with this Christmas season. If he is big enough and in control enough to show himself and give a prologue that is hundreds of years old, my, what a prologue we are getting to an eternal world of joy that we're set to for all that love his appearing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and we thank you for this text. 
and all these texts we've looked at, God, that you are God incarnate, that you have come to live with us, to dwell among us as we think through this morning what all this means, Lord. The implications of this are many. But God, help us to just trust this truth and to see the beauty that is coming together at Christmas. It's not just about sentimentality. It's not just about the movement of of giving and seeing people. But Lord, it's about your plan to make things new and to do a new thing. Lord, you were preparing for this thousands of years before it happened. And now as we look back and look forward at the same time to your coming again, May our hearts be moved and gripped by this, how in control you are, how amazing it is that you have come alongside us in a way that truly makes you understand all of our plights, to make you the only one truly worthy of that title, prophet, priest, and king. We love you and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you don't know the Savior that's described here, the one that the Old Testament points to, the furniture that was revealed from the light of the New Testament, won't you know him today? Or you just want to be part of the church or you want to pray? Do so as we sing in response. Please stand. Please stand.